News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How many languages can you speak? I don't think it's uncommon for people to speak two or three. That's amazing. I love it when I see that. But what's happening is some languages are becoming more common and others, well, they're isolated and we are losing them. In fact, it's estimated that 30% of all languages will vanish by the end of the century. And there's a lot of work to be done to save those languages that are right there on the bubble. Andrea Valentino is a freelance journalist based in New York, joining us now to talk more about this. Andrea, thank you for being here. My pleasure. What kind of work is being done? Like, how do we save these isolated languages? Um, I think so a couple of ways. I mean, the important thing to know is that isolated languages, in terms of their vulnerabilities, don't, they aren't, they're not different from any other vulnerable language. So in other words, we need to encourage people to speak them. Um, we need to encourage people to use them in school. We shouldn't discriminate against them either socially or, or legally. Um, in, in my work, I covered Basque, which is uh, probably the most famous isolated language in the world. And a lot of people who speak Basque might feel comfortable speaking formal Basque, but they don't feel comfortable speaking their family's dialect. So I think it's important for, for politicians and, and society in general to encourage people to speak whatever form of language that they may speak. So tell us about that, because I know that, that there's been a lot of work done to try to save the Basque language, but what has that been like and how did they do it? Um, well, Basque for a long time was discriminated against during the dictatorship in Spain. Uh, the Franco dictatorship was lost for a long time. Um, other minority languages in Spain, like Catalan, also uh, suffered this fate. In other words, they were uh, banned from school. Children weren't encouraged to use it. It was banned from public life. Now, since the end of the dictatorship, there's been a lot of work done in Spain, particularly in the Basque country, which is, has autonomy in Spain, to reintroduce it. So um, a, a lot of children... I think now a, a majority of Basque children now learn Basque in school. Um, Basque, uh, you can use Basque in politics in, in the regional parliament. Um, there are Basque television uh, channels, uh, Basque books. Um, and I think this speaks to the, the wider point that uh, 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 any vulnerable language isn't going to live or die based purely on policies. It's also based on how people actually use it, because obviously any language is only valuable. You know, it's only going to survive if people actually use it in their day-to-day life, and it's not simply an affectation. Okay, so that's one example of that, though. But are, are there certain areas of the world where there are concerns about the language that is used there and how to save it? Um, uh, pl- uh, plenty. I mean... Uh, to give you an idea, uh, Ainu um, is an isolate in, in Japan, and um, that, that that language is dying. Um, very few people speak it. I, I Before coming on, I was doing a bit of research locally. You're in, in Vancouver. There's the Haida language in British Columbia, and barely 20, 25 people speak that language. So a lot of these languages, both language isolates and other vulnerable languages, which are slightly different, are very vulnerable to extinction. I mean, by the end of the century, uh, hundreds of languages are, uh, about, are going to go extinct if, if things continue as they are. What happens when we lose a language, Andrea? Like, what, what value, hap- what do we lose when that happens? I think you lose an in, uh, entire way of thinking of the world. Um, if you speak a foreign language, or if any of your listeners do, you can probably think of 
uh, a turn of phrase or a particular word that's untranslatable. And every time that a language goes extinct, we, we lose that. Now, isolates in particular, especially vulnerable because a language like English, um, it's a member of a family, a broader family of languages that are related to each other. So imagine hypothetically if English were to disappear tomorrow, a lot of the grammar and vocabulary encoded in English would be able to be revived in another language like German or French or Italian. But a language like Basque, Basque is completely unique. There's no other language at all like it in the world. So once Basque, were Basque disappear or were Haida to disappear, there would be no other language that you'd be able to fall back on to, to uncover any of the, the linguistic aspects that a language like Basque contains. Right, so there's no relation to other languages. No, exactly. Okay, that's interesting then. So is it because some, some languages are just becoming more common, like more people speak English now or more people speak French and, and those are just becoming more widely known and some of these isolated languages are becoming even more isolated? Um, I, I think it's true that globalization uh, is reducing the number of languages that need to be spoken. I'm, I'm half Italian in a country like Italy people grew up speaking regional dialects that are almost their own languages and they're dying out because as migration happens, people uh, end up just speaking formal Italian. Um, as far as isolated languages are concerned, I think they're especially vulnerable because uh, they're so distinctive. That's what That distinctiveness makes them really powerful and interesting for linguists to study, but it also makes them very difficult to learn for outsiders. So again, to go back to that Basque example, if you speak French, you probably can understand a bit of Spanish. But if your listeners go away and look up Basque, uh, a text in Basque, they won't be able to understand a single word of it. It's completely different from any other European language, which now that isolation in itself makes it very difficult uh, for outsiders to, to, to learn the language. And I guess also for speakers, it discourages them from bothering because if you can speak French and you can learn Spanish, why bother speaking Basque? Right. Are we getting better at this? Like you mentioned, even here in BC, that there's obviously indigenous languages here that we need to work on. So how how can we do that? What kind of support do those languages need? Um, an, an obvious thing is money. Uh, in other words, encouraging education. I mean, some Icelandic languages, particularly in places like Papua New Guinea and remote parts of Africa, haven't even been studied. Um, we don't really know what the grammar is. So just in, uh, funding research and funding linguists to go out to these places and write grammars and interview local people to understand what their languages actually are is one thing. In a more general sense, I think it requires a cultural shift. In other words, um, as I said earlier, encouraging, not making people feel ashamed of their native language. Um, I think a lot of these minority languages, isolates and not isolates, people due to politics and culture may feel unwilling to use their language in public life. And I think that's a shame because um, I think every language, isolate or otherwise, is part of our collective heritage. And I think it's always important that just as uh, we have a collective heritage in art and music, I think language also fits in that. So true. Andrea, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Andrea Valentino is a freelance journalist based in New York who studies culture and languages and talking about the fact that, you know, we are losing languages out there. In fact, 30% of all languages are estimated to uh, perhaps vanish by the end of the century because some of them are just in isolation. Andrea gave the example of Basque being one of those languages, but we have quite a few of them, uh, Indigenous languages right here in BC that obviously need a lot of support too. This is Mornings with Simi. Great song. I absolutely love that one. All right, time for us to check in with Scott Chance this morning. I know we're going to talk about tourism here, Scott, but first off, uh, I want to thank you for being such a good sport because I really made fun of you yesterday with your whole Star Wars pick for best movie. Oh, that's okay. I'm used to uh, people giving me a rip on it because my my favorite Star Wars movie is not a very popular Star Wars movie. It's The Last Jedi. Who picks The Last Jedi? Not me, that's for sure, but Scott did. Yeah, it's underappreciated. Did you notice how many people didn't get it yesterday when we, and you wanted that clip? I did. Yep, I did. I think uh, it just, it, it, in its in time, it will be re-examined in a new light and get the credit it deserves. All right. Well, it might be after I'm dead, but that's okay. Uh, let's talk about tourism this morning. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a conversation that you're probably going to hear a lot in the coming days and weeks as we uh, find out more and hear more and the story develops around this missing submarine, which is, you know, gripping a huge portion of the world this morning. Um, So what happened here is like the people, if you're not familiar, the people who were on that submarine paid to be on there. They paid $250,000 a piece to go down and see the remains of the Titanic. And this is an example of what is called extreme tourism. Sometimes it's also labeled adventure tourism. And it's like a form of tourism that's basically uh, for the wealthy and elite, but puts them in in situations that uh, are incredibly risky like this. Another really good example of it is climbing Mount Everest. That's one that a lot of people reference. It's so many people do that now though. Have you ever seen the pictures of like, cause there's always a two week window yes. in May when you can climb Mount Everest and the weather is good. And it's the ridiculous pictures that come out of there where you're like, is this even fun for people anymore? Like where is the, where is this fun in this? For sure. It's, it has to do with this idea of saying I'm one of the only, one of the very few people in the world that did this. Oh I got gosh. up, there. I took a picture. Hurrah. I did it. I climbed the tallest mountain. It's really this. um, And part of the reason it appeals to wealthy and sort of elite people is it's like, oh, we've conquered these areas of life. We've conquered business and we've conquered family. Yes. (laughs) So now they they look for other things. Uh, Hamish Harding, who's one of the notable people on the submarine, he like owns a jet company in Dubai. He's done space tourism, you know, like he's gone up uh, in Jeff Bezos's thing. Which is another one of these things. It's only open to the really wealthy and the really elite. But one of the problems with it is, so now, for example, with this submarine, um, we're spending millions of dollars to try to find this thing. And other people are putting their lives at risk to try to find these people. Right. Here's the thing. Uh, I hope they find them. Absolutely. I do think when they find them that these two billionaires on board should probably be like, hey, we are so grateful for all of the effort. Allow us to make a donation to help out. No, no question. No question. And I also think that they should hopefully uh, take a little bit of public ribbing for like, you know, you guys, oh, I think they this will. was, yeah. And again, we absolutely, I hope that all of this happens because that would mean that they are found safely and, you know, it's great. If, if the opposite happens and obviously we don't want that to happen. Right. I think then it's fair to question 
how this was how this was allowed to happen, how people were allowed to pay this huge amount of money on a submersible, which by all accounts is not regulated, did not pass any safety tests uh, and, and was not up to any kind of standard, really. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big question that a lot of people are asking as well. Like another side of extreme tourism is this thing called dark tourism. Um, it's not as extreme, but it has to do with people going to places like Chernobyl and Auschwitz and places that people want to see. But I think we need to ask the question, should we? Is, do you think this is a social media thing? Oh, definitely. Do you think this is definitely. just an effort of people to be able to tell the world, look what I did, and it's somewhat unique, like setting themselves out from the crowd? Yeah, absolutely. I told, they, I think that the adventure or the, the advent of cell phones and the selfie and the ability to say, look, I did this. I went here. Here's a picture of me on top of Everest to prove that I did it absolutely has something to do with that. Okay, that, yeah, I guess that makes us all want to do very extreme things. Yeah, but I also think that there's like um, a bit of a fallacy in that, right? Like it's, okay, great, you went to the top of Everest, clap for you, you were able to do it because you have, you know, billions of dollars and the time to train and do all of that stuff. What Wonderful, I didn't go and I'm still here, so... Uh, I can look at it in pictures. Right, exactly. <laughs> Scott, thank you. And yes, of course, we will be keeping you up to date on that search for the submersible. We'll be getting an update from St. John's, Newfoundland coming up actually in this hour. This is Mornings with Simi. We are in the grips of an opioid overdose crisis in this province, and we have been for more than five years. And you know what? We're not the only ones. This opioid crisis is North America wide. And as we try to find answers to it, there are still questions even about how we got here. Like, how did this start? What can we learn from that? Well, the Lancet Medical Journal and Stanford University have been studying this, and that research traces the origins all the way back to the mid-1990s, and yes, the introduction of OxyContin to the marketplace. So what happened when that drug became available? What did it do to people who were using it? Well, Rob Poole is a professor of social psychiatry at Bangor University School of Medical and Health Sciences and joins us for more on this. Rob, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. So what did it do to people when Oxy was available? Like, why did it change people's behaviors so much? Um, the, the, the simple answer is we don't really know. But I think we, there are some things we can say about what might have happened. There's certainly, uh, the first thing to say is that there's a situation in America, the opioid crisis, it's a big uh, social and political issue in, in, in America with large numbers of people dying from overdose of, of, of opioids, mainly purchased on the streets um, and with a, with a strong belief that, that the route into um, street opioid addiction has been through prescribed opioids. Um, it, there's probably more to it than that. Um, we know, for example, that what happened, that the new um, uh, opioid, synthetic opioid preparations that were marketed from uh, the mid-1990s, predominantly in the first instance by Purdue um, Pharmaceuticals controlled by the Sackler family, in other words, OxyContin, um, that, that was introduced in, in, into a number of different major countries simultaneously, uh, but the effects have not been the same everywhere. So if, if indeed that, that is the cause of, of, of the street crisis. So um, it, they, they were introduced into a, in roughly at the same time scale into USA, Canada and, and the United Kingdom. Um, 
from the figures I know, um, yes, there is a crisis in Canada, just as there is in, in the USA. Um, but the extent of the crisis is less in, in, in Canada. I mean, uh, uh, my recollection is it's about about half number, half the size, per, you know, rate per population um, in, in Canada is, is in the USA. In, in, in the UK, we haven't got the same problem. In fact, um, opioid street opioid addiction is becoming less common in in the UK. Um, we have got an increased rate of opioid deaths. Um, but that seems to be um, predominantly due to the, the disinvestment of the UK government from harm reduction programmes. So we have to ask ourselves if 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 these um, if the street opioid crisis is solely due to the introduction of, of OxyContin, why has it affected different countries in different ways? And there's a number of different potential um, answers to that question. Right. That isn't, sorry. I was going to say, was it the way it was prescribed? Was there, were there different regulations about that? Do doctors do things differently? Well, yes, sir. Well, what we know is that in, in countries that distribute health in different ways, it was prescribed in different ways. So there has been a, a huge increase in prescription of opioids in the UK, in Canada, and in the USA. Um, I, I think, again, the figure off the top of my head is about fourfold in the UK. It may, it's, I think it's even, probably even larger in the USA, and, and I think Canada's somewhere in between. Um, of course, we in, in, in the UK, we have uh, a fully public system, fund, publicly funded system, free at the point of use, health service. America has predominantly um, a, 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 a pay-for item service private system, and you in Canada have something that's, that's some way down uh, the, the UK model, but not the whole way. And I think, for example, you have to pay for prescriptions in uh, mm-hmm. in Canada. Um, so, so, so one of the hints about this is that is that maybe something about the, the means of distribution of healthcare has got something to do with it. We certainly do know, and it's certainly the case, that when these drugs were introduced, uh, practitioners set up pain, so-called pain clinics in small towns in America and, they, and, and, and provided prescriptions for highly potent opioid drugs um, very, very freely. Um, but we also know that the prescriptions increased in this country very much, and we were getting the same hyperpotent drugs coming through. So OxyContin, for example, or oxycodone is the, is, is the drug, uh, the active ingredient. Oxycodone is about double the strength of, of, um, of morphine, but eventually we had fentanyl was then, was then introduced into the market. For not, it had been around for some years, but it was introduced into the kind of outpatient market. And, and, and fentanyl is, is, is about eighty times as potent right. as 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 as, um, as a morphine. So, and, and and you can see that if and there is always some leakage, of course, from the prescribed medication market into the street market. That's been the case ever since there has been drug addiction. Um, and and you can see that with these drugs that are very hyperpotent drugs that that, that they're much easier to, to accidentally overdose on 
um, than, than than more traditional ways of, of of taking drugs. Although it's always been a problem with, right. with for but, example, heroin. You don't know how how, how heavily cut the, the, the stuff you buy is. Right. I'm, I guess I'm curious. Then, so is it about the dosage? I wonder. Like, were doctors in the UK not automatically prescribing more and more and at higher dosages, which is what you know is which is when people get hooked and then you can't get them off of it. Whereas my understanding is that at low doses, it is easier to get people off of it. Right. Okay. So, so um, w- w- uh, my particular research interest is is high dose prescribed um, opioids. Uh, this is to say um, um, uh, prescriptions of more than the equivalent of 120 milligrams morphine a day. This is an internationally recognised threshold for for high dose opioids. Now, just to give you some sense of how much that is. Uh, if I were to have a heart attack while we're speaking, I'll get taken to hospital and they'll probably give me 10 milligrams of morphine. Okay. Um, and that would probably make me quite sleepy. But of course, as you take these medications, uh, opioids, your body becomes tolerant of them. So you have to take more and more to get the same effect. Although that deg- the degree of tolerance for different effects of opioids varies. So there's a kind of a tendency to need to take more to get the same effect. So there's a, there's, there's a kind of a, a natural tendency to increasing dose for, when you use these medications for chronic pain. There's also a problem that, the, that there's actually this thing known as opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is to say that as you become more tolerant, the drug starts to generate pain that you need to take some more medication to, to suppress. Right. So there's a kind of, a, a, for, at least for some people, some people end up on these very high doses, and then it's very difficult to get off because when you try and taper the dose, you get a lot more pain. When you eventually come off, or if you do it very quickly, actually the pain, some of the pain goes that you were, goes away, although you're often left with the, with the pain in the background. However, addiction isn't solely about taking a medication. The majority of people who take opioids, in no matter what dose they take, won't show addiction behaviours. And addiction behaviours include things like neglecting other 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 um, important priorities in your life in order to take the drugs, um, taking more than you're meant to take, uh, escalating dose, hoarding, um, you know, a whole range of behaviours right. that, that are associated with addiction. Now, so 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 the, 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 it isn't simply the case that if you take the drug, you will become you will develop these addiction behaviours. You may find it difficult to stop, but that isn't the same as being addicted in the street sense. Right. That's one of the mysteries around this. How, what, what is it here that, that converts people who are taking the drugs for pain into people who are street users? You know, it is so fascinating. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, our contributor Scott Chance is with us now because he has been learning all about Indigenous Peoples Day. Now he's going to help us out with that too. Morning, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, good morning. And uh, as a non-Indigenous person myself, obviously the best way for me to learn more about this was to talk to somebody who has a lot more experience and expertise in the area and uh, to try to like understand and educate myself more about what Indigenous Peoples Day is and what it means and uh, what the purpose of it is. So uh, Brad Bay He's a member of the Squamish Nation and Associate Superintendent of Indigenous Education for British Columbia. He's here with me. Brad, what does Indigenous Peoples Day mean to you? I think what it means to me is celebration of, of who we are as people, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Um, 
and also acknowledge and recognize the role that our ancestors had, our, our elders who thrived and, uh, and were resilient in, in the years before us to allow us to live a, a good life today in 2023. What do you think that as a province or as a country, we still get wrong when it comes to, to understanding Indigenous people and Indigenous education? Yeah, I think for, for folks across BC or Canada, you know, we just want them to have open hearts and open minds to, to, to unlearn what they might have learned in the past about Indigenous peoples and that we're here to, to walk the world in a good way as they are. And we want to come together in collaboration and co-develop and uh, move towards reconciliation and that, that we want to be partners, right? And so I think we, you know, I, I, I challenge, I guess, the word I want to use, all, all non-Indigenous people to get to know where they're located at, the local com- Indigenous community that they might be close to, and, uh, and work with people. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. You used a really great word there. Um, unlearn some stuff from our past, you know, so that we can we can relearn it um, properly. As a person who has uh, so much background and an understanding of of education, talk about that process. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the unlearning part is so important because part of us who who are lucky enough to go to school here in British Columbia or other parts of Canada, we were learned. Uh, a particular history of, of Indigenous peoples that might not have been the most accurate history. And so part of what we're doing today, you know, in British Columbia, for sure, uh, we're bringing in uh, local Indigenous knowledge and, and, and history and cultural beliefs, but also celebrate the success of Indigenous people. Uh, and we want everyone to know about who we are and how successful uh, we can be. And I think part of that unlearning piece to le- to relearn, as you said, is is we want children and youth to go home to their parents and aunties and uncles and grandparents, let them know what they're learning in school so they can bring teachings to, at the, in the home too to allow more and more people to truly understand our, our shared collective history, but also how we can work together uh, in a shared collective way uh, to make the province even better than it is today. The other word that you use that I really like, the Indigenous community wants to partner with people and you know sort sort of share this community responsibility and work together. I love all of that. Um, how do you think for people who are non-Indigenous, how how can we facilitate that? How can we um, you know ally and work together with Indigenous communities to to you know take that up along alongside of you? Yeah, that's a great, I love, I love that question, Scott. I think part of it is uh, when there's an invitation from a local Indigenous community, uh, take up that invitation, take up that call to action and, and ensure that you respond to that invitation in a good way and attend uh, uh, with an open heart and open mind, like I stated before, because part of um, coming together and working together, Indigenous communities will, will want to take the lead in some way and so it's important for, for non-Indigenous folks uh, not to force them themselves upon Indigenous communities. Wait for the invitation to come. And then that, when that door is open, walk through that door and, and get ready to, to, to work together and collaborate. Because I think part of the, the collaboration piece is so important because, you know, as short as 20, 30 years ago, there was very little collaboration going on. So what an opportune time, especially with Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, you know, it's reopening the door to reimagining the relationship between the two communities. Is there some resources that, that people could go to if it's like, hey, I want to know more. Where can I get started? Maybe I didn't learn this stuff uh, the way that I, I'm understanding it now in school. And I'd like to start to start reeducating myself 
Um, where could people go to get some information on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. I think, you know, obviously, you know, with with the use of social media these days, you look at the APTN, the uh, Aboriginal People's Television Network, is a great resource for people to to locate. But also, I think you no know, matter where you are in this province or in the country, uh, you go to the local nation website, social media sources, Indigenous community resources to to to, to relearn because we're all such unique people in the province of BC. We you know we have two hundred four First Nations. We all have different. Uh, uh, ways of knowing, I guess you can say, a belief system. So I think it's the best thing to know your local people first and foremost. And, uh, um, you know, the Google machine does some wonder, wonderful things. <laughs> I love that. Start start at home and, and grow out from there. That's fantastic. Brad Baker, member of the Squamish Nation and Associate Superintendent of Indigenous Education. Uh, happy Indigenous People's Day. Wait, do we say that? Do you say Happy Indigenous People's yeah, Day? Yeah, that's, that's okay to say that. Yeah, because it's a day of celebration to acknowledge... Uh, uh, the successes and, and, and where we're going, 100%, yes. Oh, Scott, I love that. And thank you for that. That was, uh, And I could say happy Indigenous Peoples Day and also the Google machine is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great day to educate yourself and um, celebrate. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. All eyes are out there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with the frantic efforts to try to find out what happened to this submersible with five people on board diving to the wreck of the Titanic on Sunday and hasn't been really heard from since. I know there's some reports out there that say some banging was heard and they're hoping that that's a good sign. But you know what? The clock is ticking on this one and the race is on. Uh, We watch carefully. And we're also asking a lot of questions, I think, too, about what is this like to do this? How... How risky, how incredible is this whole expedition? So let's talk to somebody who knows firsthand about this. Dr. Joe McGinnis is with us now, a physician scientist and member of the very first expedition to locate the wreck of the Titanic. Dr. McGinnis, thank you so much for being with us. Um, uh, Nice to be here. Can you tell me about your experience with this? When was the first time you made this dive? Well, first of all, I should say I, I know nothing about this submarine that's down there um, or the team that operates it. My experiences go back to uh, 1987 when I made my first dive to the Titanic. It was in a French government research sub called the Nautil, a $20 million, very complex, punk complex system uh, that allowed me a nine-hour dive to the Titanic. And then I made my second dive in 1991 in a Russian Academy of Sciences research sub. Um, Beautifully operated. We made 17 dives. This is an expedition that I co-led in 1991 to make an IMAX film on the Titanic. And we made 17 dives. And uh, so I've I've had some experience with, uh, with the ship over the years. Certainly sounds like it. It is so extraordinary to get to those depths and to see what is down there. What, what was it like for you? Well, I remember my first dive particularly because I was, I mean, I dived in submarines or research subs before, but never this deep. And I had, I was in the good hands of a French a pilot and a co-pilot. And you you get launched over the stern of the ship and the uh, sub-pilot fills the buoyancy chambers with with seawater and gravity pulls you down. You don't drive down. So gravity pulls you down, takes about two and a half 
hours or so, depending on the currents and and the uh, movement of the water. And the first part of the journey is through the warm Gulf Stream and then down through the Labrador Current, where it gets considerably colder. And as I say, as you go down, you're, what we, I remember looking through that viewport and seeing this midnight blackness and these flashing lights, these bioluminescent lights of creatures inside the ocean. So it was, in a sense, like going to, uh, going to another planet. It, it sounds like, do you understand, I guess, people's fascination with it? Well, I can see, sure. I mean, there's, there's several things going on here psychologically. First of all, the story of the ship itself, the 1912 story, and how we're all, we were all drawn as children to that story because it has so many very profound human lessons in it about courage and cowardice. And, and, and always the quench, question in the back of our minds is, how would we behave if we were caught in a, in a situation like that? So there's that. And then, of course, just to, to, uh, to go and see the wreck, um, which is enormous in, it, in size. Just for your listeners, it's, there's the bow section, which is almost intact. And there is the stern section, which is roughly half a mile away. And in between is the debris field of thousands of artifacts, um, household and nautical items. So it's an extraordinarily large and complex um, situation on the, on the seafloor. Okay, and so that's really part of that, I think, fascination, the complexity and the fact that it is so rare, right, for people to yeah. uh, go down there and see that. People want to see what is rare, right? They want to be one of the few. Yes, they do. That's, that's apparently what, what drew, drove these folks who were paying $250,000 a, a dive. Um, I, sh- I should say that our, the dives that we made were for science, for, for biological and geological studies. Um, but it's another thing, and these, these travelers, if you will, wanted to see the Titanic, and so they were willing to, to make the journey. And what has this done for the community of people who, who do this kind of work, that kind of research, as you say, for science? What is well, something it, like this yeah, do? It, it, goes, it goes very deeply, very quickly into uh, the research community, the, the, the folks who have spent their lives focusing on the ocean and how to work in it safely. So everybody is really confused and and dealing with a kind of swirl, emotional swirl of of hope and and sadness and fear and uncertainty, and as you mentioned earlier, the, there is this possibility of hope uh, with these sounds that have been heard. Mm-hmm. But as Sue also mentioned, uh, time time is running out. Time is running out there too. It has always fascinated people. I know I was in you know elementary school when they found the original record, just about in mm-hmm. junior high, I think, with Dr. Robert Ballard. It's always continued yeah. to fascinate, and the fact that it took so long for us to find it, I guess, gives us an idea of why it's so hard to find this submersible as well, isn't it? Well, that's right. It's it's the ocean is a very from the surface to the sea floor is a very complex place and has. Uh, severe forces in winds and waves, cold currents, a darkness that lasts forever, and, and pressures that bend steel. So it's a, it's a 
seriously hostile place. Dr. Mikitis, what lessons do you think we can take from this? I, I don't know. It's too, in a sense, too early for that. Uh, the focus now is on, on trying to find the sub and try to recover it and, and, and save the folks inside it. Um, uh, uh, so, so I guess it's a little bit early, uh, you know, but the, the primary lesson that we learn from the ocean is humility and, and respect. And, and this will certainly amplify that. Certainly will. That's a good way to put it. Thank you so much for your time on this this morning. Thank you for listening. That is Joe, Dr. Joe McGinnis, who's a physician scientist, member of the first expedition to locate the wreck of the Titanic, also part of that IMAX crew that they went down to help uh, the IMAX crew uh, take those uh, amazing footage shots that you probably saw back in the early 1990s and been doing this for a long time. And just that description of how inhospitable that part of the ocean deep down there actually is it just gives you an idea of what the rescuers here are dealing with the search, the searching and the rescue, potential rescue, incredibly challenging conditions there. And we'll keep you posted on how that is going. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about policing. No, not about the situation in Surrey, I know, for once. But there are a lot of other issues in policing and how we are policed that definitely deserve more attention. And one of them, yes, does have to do with the RCMP. Should there be more discussion about improving the way the RCMP police so many communities in our country? Or is it time to really turn the page and find a new way of building that relationship or a new way of policing? And we're talking about this because it is uh, an important day to do that, Indigenous Peoples Day. And we're going to talk about the relationship between Indigenous communities in our country and policing and what can be done better. So joining us now is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, whose traditional name is Asiut, President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. I'm sure this is an issue that you've talked about for many years. Is it time to, to really talk about improving policing in this country? I think we need to transform, completely transform uh, policing in Canada. Uh, the RCMP as an organization is, um, you know, has unraveled to the point where I don't think it's possible to reform it. It's so deeply steeped in its paramilitary history. Uh, the RCMP was created by uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, who had a vision of a national vision of creating Canada, including uh, a national railway from coast to coast, and the Northwest Mounted Police was created to clear the way, so to speak. And uh, Indigenous people were obviously, uh, in his mind, an impediment to building that national railway. So from the beginning, there has been... um, you know, uh, um, a culture of the RCMP um, controlling and um, Indigenous people, and along with the creation of reserves and and legislation that forbid us 
from leaving our reserve without a a pass signed off by uh, Indian Affairs officials. The relationship between the Indigenous peoples and the RCMP from the very, very beginning was conflict-oriented. If that okay, so given all of that, given that history that we know about now, um, would it be an important sign of reconciliation? Do you think for the federal government to say, okay, let's talk about policing in a completely new fashion? Yes, I, I think um, you know it, it's time for that, but um, unfortunately, uh, we're within a colonial neo-colonial context here in Canada and the federal government is only willing to consider some uh, cosmetic changes uh, to the RCMP. It's very much a colonial, neo-colonial institution that the government of Canada uses uh, to continue that role of controlling Indigenous people. Um, the Wet'suwet'en uh, situation is a prime example how they go about that. Ferry Creek, it's another example. The RCMP are, are um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I hate to say this on Indigenous Day, but uh, uh, somewhat of a goon squad for uh, corporations that are building pipelines and mines and uh, things that are very detrimental to the um, environment and the riparian ecosystems and so on and so forth. What would something different look like then? If, if, if that relationship were to improve or if there were a new way of doing things, what would that look like? It would look like um, the OPP um, in Ontario. Um, the OPP is a, a provincial police force. Uh, within that force, they have uh, something like 88 officers that are Indigenous and are, are very influential in what happens within that organization. And I've seen them. Uh, they, ha- they actually have a drum group. And the uh, the Indigenous voice is prominent in the OPP. The OPP officers are um, community-based, so to speak. They're not from Quebec or, or some other place in the country, and they police communities they grew up in, and they go home at night to their, their home in that community. It's a vastly different uh, arrangement than the paramilitary force of the RCMP, which is much like the army. They're deployed, they're posted, they're not policing a community that they grew up in. And they have this notion, you know, that um, they're above the law. It, and it, it's got, it's gotten worse. Thank you. So you, do you feel then that you know, if we were to have a provincial police force here in BC, that would be a first step. That would be the way to go. Yes. Okay. It's, so, because there has been an indication from the provincial government that even that all-party committee that this is this is the way we should go, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's um, 
you know, it's a no brainer actually with, uh, you know, the, um, as I said earlier, the unraveling of the police force, even within its own organization, there's been so much sexual abuse of female officers. There's all kinds of lawsuits. There's all kinds of lawsuits, um, with respect to the RCMP using excessive force and actually killing indigenous people. So I think it's time time for change. It's long overdue. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Okay, thank you. Interesting conversation. That's Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, whose traditional name is Asiud, president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. We're talking to him on this Indigenous Peoples Day about the issue of policing. Obviously, a very fraught relationship in history between Indigenous people in this country and the RCMP, uh, which is the police force that I think most Indigenous people have dealt with uh, throughout history. And they're saying, you know what, if we really want to do this, and, and great points there by Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, if we really want to turn the page, if we want to talk about reconciliation, let's talk about a different policing model.